So, um, by the way, Chuck Norris doesn't visit church. Church visits Chuck Norris. Uh, Gus had leaned over to me and told me the good news that uh, COVID is now in quarantine because it's come in contact with Chuck Norris. So you guys might want to take note of that. (laughs) I thought I specifically banned the use of all dimming lights to uh, reject bad jokes. But anyway, well, good morning. So glad to have so many of you with us this morning. So glad uh, that so many of you are watching from home as well and and checking in and staying connected, staying in tune. So uh, we uh, come to our text in First Peter chapter 2 as we slowly but surely move along through the Word of God. And uh, I, I had seen, I had heard this before, but I had forgotten it, that in 2018, the British government launched the first ever loneliness strategy. It's such a strange combination to hear about a, a secular government of a country saying we're recognizing there's a problem with loneliness in our nation. We're going to launch a strategy. They even appointed a minister for loneliness to deal with the deep isolation that millions of people feel. So in church, from the word of God, we've been talking about the problem of loneliness and isolation for as long as we've been preaching the Bible, warning against it. But it's interesting when a government recognizes, okay, this is a real, we got a real problem in our hands. And the interesting thing too is that this was pre-COVID. This is back in 2018. When left on our own long enough, you can start to forget who you are. You lose your purpose and your identity. You um, start to wonder who, if anyone, cares about you. You've lost a, a, an association to what we would refer to as family or community. And you also start losing a little perspective on who you're supposed to care for. Who, who, Where does my responsibility lie for others because I'm in isolation from them? So we all know, having gone through our own forms of isolation over the last many months, how real a, of a situation that can be. But it isn't just an issue over the last few months. This is something that all of mankind has been slowly marching towards in isolation through improvements, if you will, quote unquote, in technology and all these other things. And also this thing that lives within us to want to push back, to want to distance ourselves from others that might invade our space, keep us accountable, just become an intrusion because there has been something that's been handed down to us through the generations that says, I want to be able to answer for myself. I want to come and go as I please. I want to do what I want to do. And other people often get in the way of that. And then the sad part is, is after we've pushed them away, we realize how we were built and wired to need them, requiring us to find a way back. So what Peter is addressing as he sends this letter to those that are spread out and scattered is he's going to present to us another aspect of of really how gargantuan this living hope is for the children of God. Last week, we talked about that we are children in the same family. We painted this mental portrait of walking up the steps to a welcoming porch and an old crickety screen door that opens up and says, come on in and have dinner with us but also acknowledging all that the Father had to accomplish in order to make that invitation even possible for you and I to receive it and to become part of the family of God. Peter's going to continue. This would be basically a a part B of the same concept 
of, of these identity metaphors, all the things that he's spelling out to us that we need to know about who we are in Christ. But as we said before, once we know those things, we have to address the fact that we have a responsibility to do with what we know. And these metaphors that he's about to lay out for us in this next uh, section of scripture have a very profound historical significance to the exiles of Peter's day. They, they helped them see their place in history. It helped them see what their future was going to be, which at the moment was not very positive, to put it lightly. But it also has this incredible future, at least to them, at present day to us, these incredible future implications that you and I get to glean from, that you and I get to benefit from. Because now we're on the other side of all of this. We've, we've seen all that's accomplished in the cross. We've seen how the Lord has, has marched his church forward through the centuries and has fulfilled his promise to keep a people unto himself. So let's get into our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2 to see what some of these metaphors, some of these illustrations are that Peter uses to help get through to us where we really stand in Christ. So let's pick up in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, who's him? It's a living stone. It's Jesus rejected by men, but in the sight of God. I love this little phrase. I'm just going to camp on it for a quick second and, and move forward. In other words, he was rejected at his height of rejection. Peter says his dad was watching. His father saw it all. His father witnessed the whole thing. I love how he includes it because it's going to matter to us as to, to this next phrase. He says, chosen and precious. So as you come to him, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, this living stone, this Jesus, the Christ was chosen and precious to his father. So the comparison is made for us in verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, or it's contained or written in Scripture, and particularly he's pulling this out of Isaiah 28. Peter loves Isaiah because of the parallels to the timing of Isaiah's prophecy to a people who were being scattered about to the, the people of Peter's day who were in similar circumstances for the cause of Christ. This is what he quotes from Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. This is a foundational piece we'll talk about in a second. Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, this is what Psalm 118 is going to say that Peter is going to quote for us. For those who don't believe, the scripture says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which is a different stone, even ahead of the corner, a capstone. And then Peter goes back to Isaiah chapter eight and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So for those who don't believe, they will recognize that this stone that was rejected has become the chiefest stone in the whole building process, and it's one that they will trip over. It will be a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. He finishes this out in verse 8 by saying, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You and I... According to Peter and the, the quotes that he's given us from Isaiah and Psalms, you and I are living stones in the same building. 
We said we were children in the same family last week. And to begin this series of metaphors for this week, we understand we are stones in the same building project, but not just dead weight, not just, well, a useful tool. I'll grab this one. I think it'll do. He says, you're living stones fashioned in the image of the perfect stone, useful for the building that God is putting together, which happens to be a spiritual house. In order for us to understand that we are fit stones for the work that the father's doing, it would also have to equate from what the scripture is telling us and what we know of other portions of scripture it would have to equate that you and I are misfit stones for the world's crooked building. This is exactly what Jesus experienced when he says that the stone, that's Jesus, that the builders rejected They had their own blueprints. They had their own designs. They knew what they wanted to accomplish. And Jesus' measurements didn't fit in that scheme. It's funny. We go back to the 80s. In, uh, in, in this little phrase that we said, I, I'm, I, I was a child of the 80s, so I think it's a phrase of the 80s. Some of you might say, not, well, no, none of you are older than me in this room, so I take that back. Um, but, um, I'm just trying to win friends and influence people. Is it working? Um, uh, a phrase back from the 80s is, you're square. That was not a compliment. If you were square, you were too rigid, you were a nerd, you didn't go with the flow, you weren't cool, all those kinds of things. So being square, well, actually, Huey Lewis had to eventually tell us that it was hip to be square. I don't know if any of you remember that. Some of you are nodding your heads. Huey Lewis said it's hip to be square. So this is what's going on now is that we are misfits for the building that the world had designed because in Jesus we are too square. This is how Jesus says it in John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. You're you're just measured by my standard. They already rejected my measurements, he says. Verse 19, if you were of the world, if you were measured like them, if you had the right unsquareness, I don't know what the word would be, the world would love you as its own. Isn't it interesting how even if you're in a pit of dysfunction, that other people just accept you. Why? Because you're like us. Yeah, we don't have our stuff together. Yeah, we haven't figured it out. Yeah, we keep making a mess of our relationships and our personal situation, all that kind of stuff, but let's do it together. I ran into this all the time in in school. You know, we always, uh, you had those that wanted to study hard and do well, and then others who just wanted to have a good time and all this kind of stuff. And I was always somewhere in between. So my grades sort of reflected that and I didn't know which crowd to be in. But it's funny, it was like there was this camaraderie of people that the, the ones that wanted to work hard and do well, they all got it and they kind of encouraged one another. The ones that were just like, ah, they're just kind of, they're not having any fun. We, we want to run with the crowd who reflects our personal choices and the things that we like. And Jesus says, if, if the world would love you as its own, if you were measured like them. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. We don't fit the measurements of their grand design. Their, their measurements look like self-autonomy. Their measurements look like freedom to them that's in the temporary. This whole thing about submitting and surrendering yourselves, your life to, to an authority that created you and one that loves you enough to lead you into places of happiness to them just looks too rigid, too square. And so the scripture is saying that they disapproved of the measurement of the cornerstone. 
which is referring to Israel's rejection of Jesus. And this represents for us the repudiation of man-made anything when it comes to the surrender of our will to our creator. Peter, in quoting, said their rejection, what they actually rejected is the thing that became very precious to us. It didn't fit their measurements or their standards, but we said, this is exactly what I was looking for. It's a perfect fit for everything that I think my life is trying to be built around. So the measurements are perfect for me. It's become precious to me as a believer. The presence, the name, the authority of Jesus is always, always has been and always will be this lightning rod that creates such venom and hostility in the world. It's not enough just to say, eh, I don't really like the measurements. Eh, that stone's a little too, eh, I don't know. It's, it's, I've got to get rid of the stone, every visibility of it, any acknowledgement of it. I'd like to destroy the entire measurement system that somehow said this one was perfect and to see that all the way through. So we are misfit stones for the world's crooked building. We've been also rejected by men. But also we are now perfect stones chiseled from a perfect mold because Jesus was chosen and precious. Uh, We're also making the connection from from Peter's uh, words to us that our offerings, our spiritual house that we're building and the sacrifices that are contained therein are acceptable through Jesus Christ. Perfect stones. I, I don't feel perfectly chiseled. I don't feel like I'm measured perfectly. I certainly don't feel as though I match the perfect, the perfect standard that, that Jesus has laid out. So I would have to acknowledge if the word of God is true and I don't feel that way, then someone's got more authority than my feelings and it must be Jesus. But we are now in him perfect stones chiseled from a perfect mold. You know, this idea of cornerstone in terms of the foundation piece is this perfect, um, uh, angled, perfectly measured, perfectly sustainable in terms of the weight that it can bear and all of these things for the building project to come. And history is recorded. Some of these stones have been so massive, they could be like 70 feet long, you know, in a 12 foot high, 12 foot, 13 foot wide block, this massive. And I'm always looking at how they used to do things back then without the equipment that you and I have access to now that mankind has invented. I'm like, how do they, and they will choose that stone perfectly. They will, they will choose it carefully. I mean, and they'll spend lots and lots of money on it because this is going to set everything else straight for years to come. My, uh, my family and I, we were privileged over the, you know, the, the bigger aspects of shutdown, we bought a house and I told people, I said, it's amazing what you'll do when you can't go get a haircut. So it's like, I can't go get a haircut. Let's go buy a house. Let's see how that goes. And it's also interesting. You can buy a house, but you can't get a haircut anyway. So different commentary for a different day. My wife and I try not to bore you with all the small interests in, in life things. I'll just be very quick about this. I hope, but I love talking about it. Uh, my wife was really looking for something that had some age to it and some character, something that, that would feel restored and brought back to life and everything. And I was not. I like all of that. I love all of that. I appreciate all of that. But I am not the one to put things back together and restore them to their original beauty and all those things. I'm like, I wish I could afford someone to do that for me. That's the way it goes in Brent's life. 
And so we looked for a while. We've been talking about it for years, just kind of, yeah, casually or whatever. And then we finally found a place that I found out what appealed to me. What appealed to me was something that could be so old. This is like an 1800s house that everything looked perfectly straight. I'm, I have this like OCD thing. I don't know if some of you struggle with this too. I need to see straight lines and I move things back into the corner. They have to fit and everything. Stop by my office and you can be like, okay, the sickness is real. You know, you can look at how everything is light out. So when I look at a building, if I see all of this kind of stuff, all I see is headache and nightmare and expense and all that kind of stuff where others can just be like, yeah, it's been there for 150 years. It'll stay. It'll be fine. I can't really do that. And so what I looked for was, you know how they always refer to these old homes, how are the bones in the house? I looked for the walls being straight, the roof line being straight and everything. And I traced it all down as I'm looking outside this place to the foundation just looking perfect and sturdy and stable. Now, some of you have these old places too, and we've seen them so much in New England. As soon as the barn section starts, it's a different story, isn't it? And it starts getting a little squirrely and weird and everything. So they started propping that up and they put beams and posts and all these kinds of things. And uh, that's about as the extent of my technical jargon for this. Um, and they set that all up so I could look at this and say, okay, I think this house isn't requiring the lack of skills that Brent Small doesn't have to keep it together. This looks like it's going to stand, at least in my lifetime. And uh, it'll be somebody else's problem later on. Because the straight lines built on this foundation were very, very appealing to me. Now, this is going somewhere. And there's a section of barn that is elevated. And it's this kind of separate area. And you finally get to it and you look. And it's got these massive tension cables that are crossed. That are kind of held together right in the dead center. And you touch them and they don't move. You know, it's just kind of... And that's it. And somebody was explaining to me, that is so that these walls don't go like this. Like that. Because that foundation isn't there for that section of barn. And so somebody had to come in and put those tension cables to hold it all together. Where am I going with all this? Well, partly I just wanted to talk about my house. Thanks for listening. More to the point, though, Jesus, in this metaphor of a building, is the foundation piece that when placed in the corner and set for everything else to be built and based off of it, will keep the entire house perfectly straight. But some have been building on a foundationalist existence to where the walls are trying to come off. And Jesus as a capstone to that. It, it, this capstone would, would bring the tension of the walls together and hold it all in place. Sometimes it would even be used as an arch capstone piece and hold that delicate thing together. That Jesus is, is the beginning of our foundation and also the thing that holds it together when everything else in life is trying to pull it apart so the walls just start collapsing all around us. This is what Peter is accomplishing by saying he's the cornerstone, but he's the cornerstone in two different aspects. He sets the foundation for proper building, but he also restores the building that is trying to fall apart. But he tells us that these stones were bound to trip people up. Not all would receive him. In fact, it was the Lord's understanding and plan that many would reject it because of their desire to disobey. disobey. Because of their desire to live autonomously, this was always going to be, Jesus was always going to be a stone of stumbling 
and a rock of offense. They would disobey the word as they were destined to do that, that, that God knew that per- putting such a perfect stone in place, many would fall flat on their face walking, trying to walk over it. With all of these things, we have to recognize that there are benefits and responsibilities to all of these images that Peter is throwing our way. And as a living stone, we know that we have a firm and square foundation to build on. We know that we have a capstone that keeps the the tension of things together for us so that it doesn't all fall apart. But we also have a responsibility to find our resolve in the, in the life and, and in the, in the manner of Jesus so that as that tension is starting to pull apart our walls and the walls of the society around us and everybody around us that we run to him as the only one that can keep it together. Now I hesitate saying that out loud because it seems like in ministry we're always so quick to like say, make it sound like, well, Jesus is the answer. Just bring that to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. And people struggle with, well, what does that really look like? What does it mean to, to bring it to Jesus? And not all of it can be explained. Because we serve a supernatural, spiritual God who infuses and lives within his children, there is an aspect where we have to trust that he lives in me. The life of Jesus lives in me and eventually comes out. And my daily battle is to surrender more and more of my flesh to be uh, led by the presence of Christ. But also it would require us coming to the record that we have of his life and, and walking through and say, how did he handle these things? The, the, what was it? The nineties now phrase, what would Jesus do? That has to become this real thing of what did Jesus do as he was walking this earth? He did more than just leave a good example. He lives in us, but he still left us an example of how we're to live. Uh, David Helm, a pastor and theologian, says, as God's living stone, you and I are at the center of what he is doing in the world. Why? Because we are God's spiritual house. Or as the old French proverb says, hey, wherever you go, there you are. Or the other one I like is, um, well, you never know, you know. I don't know. You just told me I wouldn't, so how can I? Or maybe we could put a spin on the old French proverb, wherever you go, there he is. So he has sent us out to be a spiritual house in a world trying to fall apart. The second thing that Peter points out for us is that you and I are royal priests in the same temple. Let's go back to verse 5 for a moment. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What does a priest do? He offers sacrifices, but ours are spiritual. Our sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 9. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, I wish we had time for every one of these metaphors to really just give it in its own message, and we could break down some of the details of these things. But in the Old Testament, the, the priests signified so many important and necessary aspects of our relationship to God, because the priest was the mediator. The priest was the one who took the commands of the Lord to the people and helped them wrestle with application and reminded them the calendar and all of those kinds of things, but also took the requests and the needs and basically the representation of the sins of the people to God. The priest was that mediator. 
He was the go-between. He was tasked with watching or guarding the, the covenant that the Lord had established with his people. So in a sense, he had to be almost like a manager, making sure, hey, you guys are forgetting what God said. Remember when he said, if you do this, he'll do this. He had to remind them, he had to study that. He was charged with teaching God's ways and communicating God's laws. Could you imagine proclaiming this continuous, impossible set of standards? You know, the law was given to us as a true reflection of, of the character and the, and the holiness of God, but it was never given to us with the expectation that we'd be able to do it. It is so perfect. It is so high above us that we were always going to fail because we are created. We are below the ability of God to do all these things perfectly. And so, I mean, as much as sometimes I feel like part of my job is to say things that are a very lofty kind of nearly impossible set of standards, I at least know that we've got the presence of the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant indwelling the life of every believer. So I get to just proclaim the words here. The life of them is in the words that you hear, you adapt. The Spirit says, I'm going to shine light on this for you to understand how you're supposed to apply it in your life. So a lot of my job, the heavy lifting is being done for me by the Holy Spirit of God. The Old Testament priests said, by the way, you need to do this, this, and this, jump through all these different kinds of hoops to display a picture that you don't yet fully understand. This will all come to, to fruition in a different era, but for now, you've just got to do this in obedience, but it's not just to be a mind-numb robot to just do, do, do. There was something behind it. And a priest was to offer incense and sacrifices. Another reason why I'm glad I'm called to the ministry in the New Testament era, not the old, is they were pretty much butchers, which I wouldn't have had the stomach for. So now you know I can't build houses and I can't hurt animals. I just don't have the stomach for it. Real inspiring. Anyway, the Old Testament priest had a lot of those kinds of duties. And now Peter is saying, but this is now your role. This is now what you're called to, is that now you are a priest under the new covenant. And you and I are exercising this new covenant by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You and I receive the principles and the laws and the instructions of God on our hearts. So as we read it on the pages, it, it literally brings life to our souls. So Peter said, but you're not without the with the opportunity and the responsibility to offer sacrifices. It's just that you're offering sacrifices that are spiritual in nature. And even though so often we don't think they count or they don't go anywhere, he says, these, these are the sacrifices that are acceptable to God. We should know this if we've been studying what Jesus has said about sacrifices and what God was pointing to even in the Old Testament when, when he was indicating to us that sacrifices were never the total fulfillment of God's requirement. He didn't say, if you kill this animal, if you burn this on the stake, if you offer this, you're going to be good. Just do that and that's all that's required of you. There was more to it than that. It's indicated for us in passages like Micah. One of my favorite parts of the scriptures is in Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. There's a there's an, Ill, an illustrative conversation going on between the the represented people of God and the prophet of God, and this is what they say. They say, "With with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with a with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul?" 
In other words, what level of sacrifice could I give in a sense to, to get the weight of God's perfection off my back? And so the prophet says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, what about all these efforts? What about the picking the right animal? What about bringing it to the priest? What about offering all those sacrifices? Yes, do those things, but do those things fueled and charged by your faith that your sin has required this of you and that God is merciful and just to forgive you of your sins. That it isn't your act, it isn't your great sacrifice of picking the best calf among your herd. But it's the the fact that in humility, I know this is what the Lord requires. And by his mercy, he hasn't taken my very life in payment of my own sin. He has accepted this instead. And so faith was always the key ingredient in the required sacrifice. But like mankind does, we fall into a false sense of comfort because we can offer the thing. I, I I can afford that calf this year. The one that the Lord's requiring. I got plenty. So here, priest, now you, you know what? You pick the best one. I'm going to leave this up. You want to, you do it because I got this covered. Because this is what we do in our hearts as we start to see our sacrifices as, as somehow doing the Lord a favor and somehow getting him off our back. So Jesus challenges this. In Matthew 9, verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, you set up the the rituals, Lord. You said sacrifice. Now you're saying you don't desire it. He says, I desire something more than just throwing an animal on an altar. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And going back to Matthew 5, he says, so even if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave it at the altar because the gift itself isn't the most important thing. It's the interpersonal issue that you've got with the other human being in your life. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and not discard the gift. It doesn't matter. Come back and then offer it properly. You see, Jesus didn't condemn sacrifices, but he pointed to human inability to satisfy God. So he himself was the fulfillment of these sacrifices. And as spiritual priests in a spiritual house, our offerings of service are pleasing to God as spiritual sacrifices. Paul tells us in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, the efforts that you and I will go through to to be holy as as Peter is calling us to do, the efforts that you and I will go through to endure a little bit longer under the hardships and sufferings of all that this world throws at us, the efforts that you and I will go through in order to really present something that has cost us something is a living sacrifice. We're presenting our bodies holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So as a priest, we have the obvious benefit of this unhindered access to God's holiness. I wish we had time to get into the access restrictions in the Old Testament of the priest and the high priest. It puts us in a unique position. Not anybody could be called a priest in the Old Testament. You couldn't just pick it as a career choice. You had to be born in the right tribe and of the right family. 
And so by God's picking us, choosing us as, as royal priests in a spiritual house, now we have a unique and holy position equipped for the task. You and I are to present our spiritual sacrifices to God. This is part of our responsibility with all the benefit that he's given us. In other words, proclaim his excellencies, live his praises before other people in order to maintain our holiness before him. All right, last metaphor that Peter gives us here. We are citizens of the same nation. Now, I intend to not make a lot of comment and point about this. I'm going to let a lot of the scripture do it speaking because this theme of being citizens in the same nation has now been made over and over up to this point because remember, Peter is talking to exiles who feel politically disconnected, feel spiritually or or religiously disconnected as being the scattered out elect exiles of God. And so this point has been made, but I think it can be strengthened by seeing how Peter words this. Let's go to verse 9. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received Mercy. We know that he's already called them the chosen race, the elect of God, even though they're in exile. Now he's saying that they're a holy nation. They're distinct, that their borders are spiritual. They don't have a flag or an identity that fully represents who they are in Christ. That is a a much higher flag and a much broader and, and more secure identity they have now as a holy nation. And of course, this is messing with the the, the, uh, Israeli mindset because that symbolism and that necessity to be a nation was so front and center to them. Paul had warned so many from getting too attached to things of this earth and in likening it to this idea of being a part of a holy nation, a spiritual of spiritual borders. He says in Philippians 3, Verses 19 through 20, their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's basically everybody outside of Christ is what he's saying. And, 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 and tell me that couldn't be a contemporary commentary in our world now. Verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says we are for his, Peter says we are for his own possession. And this might seem a little bit weird. I mentioned this last week when we were talking about being welcomed as children into a family. And I said that we belong to God, that, that he is our owner. And we just kind of go, oh, I don't like the sound of that. It's uncomfortable to think of that he owns us in that sense. So let me see if 1 Corinthians 6 can help explain what we're talking about. Verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And we so often look at that and go, yeah, you're right. I don't belong to myself. I guess I should tighten it up a little bit and clamp down on it. Now, all those things are true. There's so much to the Christian life about discipline. And Paul says, I beat my body into subjection to keep it under the will of God and everything. So that's all there. But Peter is sharing this to be hopeful. He's saying you are possessed, you are owned 
by the Lord because everything else you feel in your life is disconnected, futureless, groundless, baseless, no foundation. And I'm telling you, because he possesses you, he loves you enough to keep you and will not let you stray outside of his will. So even when we come to Paul's instruction that we are bought with a price, the response and the reaction is we're singing the praises of his excellency should be, thank the Lord that somebody has me. I will gladly lay down the things that I so often am tempted to hang on to in my own life for the purpose of glorifying God with even my body. And we can also make the application that you and I are ambassadors of this spiritual country of another country representing another leader who is using all things in this world to usher in his glory. So 2 Corinthians, this will be familiar to us since we just came through that letter last year and early part of this year. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Scripture says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, making his, uh, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because we are his ambassadors, what this text is telling us is that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to represent his efforts to reconcile the world to himself. He's made Christ available. He's, he's made Christ the sacrifice sufficient to pay for everyone's sin. So if we're rec- if we're representing him, what we represent out there is he wants you to come to him, not the opposite. So why are these identity metaphors so hopeful to these scattered people in this first century? Peter's reminding them, even if they lose, which they have, in a sense, lost their nation or their city, even if they've lost their temple or their religious structure, they haven't lost what really matters, what really counts for them for all of eternity. They haven't lost their place in Christ. He has secured their position and he secured their dwelling in the heavenlies. And this might not sound extremely earth-shattering to you and me as we live in relative safety and relative security. I know that we felt the threat and the, the discomfort of those things being challenged lately, but it becomes extremely practical and beneficial when that's all you have. When everything else has been stripped away and the voice of Peter through the the leading of the Holy Spirit says, but God has secured a place for you in the heavenlies. He has a purpose for you on this earth to represent him and all of his efforts to bring mankind to himself. Now, all of a sudden, those people who were hopeless and, 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 and disheartened now have perked up. You're paying attention to this living hope. You mean I... I get to be a living stone. You mean that I'm, I'm actually called to be a priest, that I have that, that quote unquote religious responsibility to represent what his spirit is doing, that I belong to a people. How you and I see ourselves, this issue of identity means more to our resolve than we often recognize. Often it's more than, I mean, I, I'm sorry, identity is much more than just this gobbledygook of the power of self-importance and getting a better, more positive self-image. I want you to see yourself as whatever. We need to remember the price that was paid for our eternal freedom and the blessings that are ours in terms of the stability and security that that comes from Christ as living stones. 
the access to the presence of God that comes as priests, in a place of belonging that comes as a part of being his people. All of those things fuel us to endure and to keep moving forward. And he tells us on top of all this, like, like a cherry on top of the Sunday, that our sacrifices count, that he will find them acceptable. And that we have no more shame because of our failings. We've stepped into the marvelous light and we've been given mercy that we would never, ever deserve or be able to earn apart from Christ. That is why this message continues to be a message of hope for God's people, both then and now. It is on us to internalize them, to respond to them and allow the Lord to change our actions, to change our hope and our countenance, even in dark days. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you, God, for bringing us around your word. I thank you, Father, for the message of hope that you've preserved through the centuries. I'm always struck, Lord, by how applicable an old message is to a modern people. Because your principles don't change. Your book never needs updating or improving on. I pray that we would just become more and more in tune with it, more familiar with it, more comforted by it, and even more importantly, more transformed by it. So thank you, Lord, for words of life. Help us to come around your table this morning, Lord, in in reverence and respect, but with such joy that we've been rescued, we've been set apart, and we've been counted as worthy for your building plans. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to turn each location over to um, our leaders for communion time as we come around the table, but God bless you this morning.